Hello, my beautiful friends. Welcome to a Helping of History Season 2. I'm your host, Dr. Angela Riotto, and this show combines my three main passions in life, food, history, and helping others. Here, we are passionate about having real, honest, and sometimes ridiculous conversations, and nothing is off limits. Season two is going to be all about people. We'll discuss their books, articles, podcasts, Twitter series, all the things. I may also throw in a discussion about habits as well. So sit back and enjoy a helping of history. For our first episode of season two, we invite Dr. Michael D. Gambone on the show. Mike is the author of eight books, including Long Journeys Home, American Veterans of World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, published in 2017, and The Greatest Generation Comes Home, The Veteran and American Society, published in 2005. He is currently a professor of history at Kutztown University of Pennsylvania, and he is a veteran of the 82nd Airborne Division. In 2006, he deployed to Iraq as a Department of the Army contractor and served in the city of Mosul. Tonight, we're going to talk about his upcoming book, The New Praetorians, coming out with University of Massachusetts Pretz. I am so excited to have him here, so let's get started. And with that, welcome, Mike. I'm so excited to have you on the first episode of season two. It's good to be here. It's uh, always great to talk with you. Yeah, no. So for those who don't know um, and are followed us for Soldiers on Screen, so Mike and I have actually never met in person. Uh, Mike and I met virtually during the COVID world with a podcast series called Soldiers on Screen run through the University of Wisconsin POW MIA Remembrance Project. And um, we hit it off and we still like each other. So he agreed to join me on my show. Exactly. But Mike is here to talk about his upcoming book uh, entitled New Praetorians, and he will tell us what the post colon is. Um, But we're really excited to have you here, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, I'm glad I looked up my title just so I always do this in class, too. So the full title, uh, The New Praetorians, Modern American Veterans, Society and Service in the Forever War. And it's uh, coming out in about a month, uh, University of Massachusetts Press. Yeah. Yes. Great. So when we post this episode, I will be sure to link the book so you can pre-order it and get your hands on it because I've already read it. I got a sneak peek and it is an excellent book. So let's dive in. So can you tell me about the book? Yeah, it's, um, it's the third in a series I've written. I started this 15 years ago. Um, First book was focused very specifically on World War II veterans. Uh, The next one covered um, them, Korea, Vietnam. So it was more of a comparative approach. And then this one, you know, tried to finish out the story by looking at veterans since Vietnam up to and including, well, the forever war. So all the post 9-11 veterans. So a lot of time and a lot of different groups. And um, it's almost like, I don't even know what, at this stage, maybe my third career, um, because it, it's a topic we always talk about in class, but I just kind of dove into it just to see what the details were. Did you know that you were going to do like a trilogy or did you start with the first book and you're like, wait, I can keep going? Yeah, I, I, you don't know. I mean, it's, it's weird because UMass came to me to write this um, and I agreed to it literally like I got right before the, the pandemic broke out. So they looked at a sample chapter, said, let's go with this. So I said, great. And then everything shut down. Yep. And, and so, so can you have it ready by October 1st? Sure. I always agree to everything. So of course I did. Um, and I, I just, it was great, I guess in a way, cause you know, during the pandemic, everything was total immersion. So it was a really good, um, a good thing to have during all that. Right. And um, I didn't manage to set foot in a single archive. I did everything online, everything. That's fabulous. And made the internet work, I'll tell you that. Did you learn any tips and tricks that you want to share? I know we're getting off topic already, but is there any tips and tricks of doing research on the internet during COVID? Well, 
Everybody knows that when you tap into an official U.S. government source, the first thing you're going to get is 50,000 hits on whatever you ask for. So I learned really quickly how to focus. And um, I was pulling out like VA annual reports from like the 1970s, uh, full PDFs of them. Wow. So once you crack the code to get into some of the, the background archive, you're in good shape. And um, that was great. I mean, and you've got tons of studies and the VA has so many different sub you know, branches now. Um, that was great. Everything in Congress is digitalized. So there was so many different ways to go at this. Um, and you have social media from veterans. Um, so that's another thing you're asking me about oral histories. Uh, a lot of it I got from that. Wow, that's so. great. I know, yeah, you hear horror stories about people who got their book project finally accepted. They go in for revisions and then all the archives shut down. Yep. Um, and they're like, I can't, I can't do anything. I'm frozen. But I guess you're proof that no, you can do it. You just have to maybe be a little bit more creative in your search engine use and even maybe some of the sources like social media. Well, you know me well enough by now. I never let anything like common sense get in my way. You know, I just, <laughs> I'll just keep at it. Yeah, and it, I, and it was a great thing. I mean, it's just aside from the workload, I mean, I'm teaching a four, four course load. So you know, it was a uh, transition to full online, which I had never done, plus this. Um, and every time that I needed to do revisions or something, it was always like final exams or something. It's always like the worst possible time. Yeah, you get so, page proofs while you're doing uh, final exams. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I, I'll tell you one thing. I, I can't say, I, can, I could not say more good things about the UMass staff because the everybody was great. Um, you know, I, you, you get to accumulate experiences with editorial staffs. They were the best. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm honestly not kidding. Uh, I had a, a copy editor who was the most diplomatic person I ever met. Uh, she was great. That is fabulous to hear. Cause you know, there's also horror stories about copy editors yeah. and you did not have that. That's amazing. No. I included her in the acknowledgements and I actually included some misspellings to see if she'd catch it. And she, she got every one of them. Yeah. She was laughing. She said, I, I saw that. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a wonderful relationship then to have. That's, that's really great. I want to bring her along with the next project. I actually already asked the publisher. Um, oh, well, that's good. But I, who knows, but I definitely, definitely work with her. Well, before we get to like what your next project will be, because you are a very, well-published author, right? Eight books. This is, is this your ninth book? Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. very impressive, Mike. But uh, so let's go back a little bit. So you said that this is part of this trilogy series, your focus on veterans. Why did you start your work on veterans and why did you start this project in particular? I, so, you know, the, the first half of the answer is what I usually tell people. And it's, you know, it's definitely what got me started was the fact that this topic keeps coming up when I teach. And the original group of World War II veterans I kept looking at is so gigantic. You know, we're talking, you know, in the ballpark of 16 million people. Yep. And we always talk about, and they came home and everything was great. Then the baby boom. And we just skip over it. And I thought to myself, how can we, you know, do that to such a giant group of people? And the more you look at that, the more you realize that, you know, the number of the total number, you know, by the time you get to the early 1980s, there's something like 28 million veterans in this country. Wow. So, you know, social history is always looking at constituencies. And this is the one of the ones I thought we missed. And it's kind of invisible, uh, right? It's like yeah. the invisible mass that's just part of our society. It kind of surfaces periodically when, you know, you're thinking about, you know, veteran running amok in a crime spree or you have a problem with, you know, whatever that generation's version of PTSD is, but the assumption is everybody went home and it was fine. So I, I got curious about that and, you know, I, I like to unpeel stuff and that's what I did. So that was one reason. Um, I think the other one's more personal. Um, when I was getting ready to deploy to Iraq back in 2006, I, um, you know, I'm digging out old uniforms, you know, because I'm, I'm a, I, I enlisted back in the 80s and I had jump boots from my time at Bragg and I had jungle boots. Wow. But I didn't have any desert boots. So I loaded up my seven year old and we went to Cabela's, which, you know, it's a big uh, sports, you know, paraphernalia place. <laughs> and I started looking. And at one point he asked me, he said, he said what are we doing, dad? And he said, uh, I said, well, I need boots for the desert. 
And he, the, my son, he's seven years old. He looks at me and he says, you know, dad, it's wrong to kill people. Wow. And I, I realized, you know, at that moment, you know, my little kid thought, you know, I'm going to war and dad might be a killer. Yeah. And I, I realized, you know, I think to myself, that's an experience that a lot of people like me have to deal with and understand and translate. And so I think part of the reason I wrote this was honestly personal. Because I'm trying to figure out what what's going on, you know, in the last 20 years of this experience. So, yeah, that's a reason. Yeah, totally. Like that disconnect, right? I know you you explore that in your book, but just the disconnect that people who aren't going to war, whether at as a, in a soldier capacity, in a contractor capacity, what have you, they have experiences that people who've never gone to war will never have. They'll never be asked, "Are you going to kill somebody?" Are you going to war? That's a conversation they're never going to have. And there's that just inherent disconnect between yeah. civilian and soldier. So, yeah. And that's, yeah. I don't think you're ever going to get to the, the bottom, the bottom of it, but I think that it was worth the search for it, you know, and that's, I, I never think there's any finished stories. And that's why I think I wrote that at the end. I said, this might be a starting point, um, but we have to understand. Yeah. You have to start somewhere, right? Yeah, exactly. So are jungle boots the black ones? They're the um, they're leather on the uh, the toes and heels, and the rest are canvas. And they have a steel plate in the in the sole. Oh, and it's it's there for booby traps. So, but in the desert, that steel plate gets really hot. I bet. And also, I think black probably stands out against sand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you want to blend in. And the ones I got were I still have them. I still wear them. They're very extremely comfortable. Um, and I needed that. So yeah. Um, but yeah, I had to update myself for the 21st century. Yeah. Yeah, you got to get ready for that forever war that's in your title. <laughs> I'm telling you. Um, so yeah, tell me what the title means. Can we dive into that a little bit? Yeah, I, I was trying to think of, um, it started as the New Centurions, but I realized that's not quite what I wanted. And I picked the word Praetorian because you're talking about a segment of the military that started out as you know representing citizens and the general whole. But over time, it became more and more exclusive. So by time you get to the period of emperors, um, you've got a military that is separated from society, different from society, and they know it. And in the beginning, I just wanted to illustrate that. And I didn't want any of the political um, ramifications because we have a really strong culture in the military of being apolitical. And mm -hmm. I always, it's funny, I'm teaching cadets now who are part of my class, and I really hit that hard. But I think in the recent, you know, couple years, um, that's that's eroded, and I think that's where it, it takes on a different definition right now. Um, and it's it is a concern. It's always a discussion about you know political preferences and military and conservative politics. And I've done a, I've read a lot of surveys, um, but it's taken on a sharper edge recently. So I didn't really intend that, but I think that's there too. Okay. Yeah, because centurion is that just like a, a more common Roman soldier? Yeah. Okay. And so, but Praetorian, like you're saying, it's exclusive, even if it's it's separate. They're the elite. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a distinction to that, and you're arguing that our current veterans also are separate. They're excluded or exclude themselves for some reason. And distinct. And I distinct. Yeah. I think part of that's influenced by the fact that I, you know, one of my other fields is Latin America, and you see that separation a lot in that military culture and it, it goes back for centuries and um back to like the fuero militar from you know the, the 18th century when it's imparted to uh build those armies um so yeah i mean there's a lot of reasons why but i was i guess the exclusivity part i was really trying to hit no i liked it because it, it sounds sexy right mike like new praetorian sounds sexy it makes you want to read it like you want to dive in um, but it all, it does, because it stands out, you're not exactly you're like, wait, where's this going? And yeah. you, you explain a little, you explain in the introduction why you chose that term. So thank you for sharing a little bit more about oh. it because I'm always looking for new fun titles. And I think you chose an excellent one, your pre-colon excellent title. But I was like kind of jumping ahead about this distinctness, this exclusivity and the, the term use. So why not just talk about like the citizen soldier, right? So what how is praetorian do you think that is more accurate than just citizen soldier now is it because when they become veterans they cease being part of that citizenry or that See, citizen I think soldier? 
this is where I'm picking up the thread of the first two works because, um, you know, starting, you know, in World War II, you've got this combination of conscription and volunteer service. And I, I read a very good book about the draft and it always struck me as interesting is that the, the war with the highest draft rate was actually World War II and the lowest draft rate was Vietnam. Um, a lot of people volunteered to get ahead of the draft. Mm. But what you had was that service was, was very broadly spread throughout society. You know, I mean, it's, it was very normal for celebrities to serve in, you know, real capacities. I always think of somebody like Jimmy Stewart. Oh, he's my favorite. Like, let's yeah. go on a tangent really quick, Mike. Can we talk about this? Sure. Is, I love John Wayne. You know this. You know yeah. me. My dog is named after John Wayne. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting to think that John Wayne, for how many films he made, never served, right? He did, oh. uh, he did films. Um, a lot of propaganda films that we know, but he actually never served. And then there's a man like Jimmy Stewart who gets the rank of Brigadier General. Yep. And he's, he, everyone said he was just the nicest guy. Um, he really believed in America and what he could do for the nation. And he continued that through his entire acting career. And I'm just blown away then how you can have Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne serve on the same set. I was like, was there like a little bit of a tension there. Like I'm a real soldier. I bet. I would really like to know. Cause even um, who, uh, Rhett Butler, who's the guy who played Clark Gable. He also ended Clark up serving Gable. as well after his wife died. So it's like, there's, there had to be some sort of tension on these movie sets when you have people who are playing soldier and people who are like, no, I, I did that. Yeah. And I, um, I think of Ted Williams, another great example. You know, he serves in two wars. And, uh, you know, he's, he's flying uh, fighter planes. I mean, he he's wasn't doing, you know, USO shows. He was fighting. He was fighting. Or like Lee Marvin. Like Lee Marvin was a Marine. And then he yeah. goes on. Just, um, it always fascinates me. Sorry. But yes, Jimmy Stewart. Now we're, now Man, we're getting I into our, we all should respect. <laughs> we're getting into our uh, movie review stuff. But I know it's, it's funny because when you read, um, I just finished a book on The Wild Bunch with Sam Peckinpah. Okay. And there was an interesting discussion about that because a lot of these actors had veteran status, which gave the characters they played a lot of agency. That's definitely Lee Marvin. So I guess what I'm saying is there's an authenticity here that's not unusual. It's, it's, it's everywhere. Yep. But a big turning point in my, my story was in 73 when the draft ends and downsizing begins. And the whole idea of service becomes very more exclusive, rare, and sequestered. And maybe that's a good word to say. Um, oh, sequestered? Because that all volunteer force is not the I'm sorry. Did you mean sequestered is the word? Yeah. Yeah, that all volunteer force is very different. And um, that's where you really start to see that the, the origins of that. Um, yeah, my connection's breaking up here a little bit, so. No, we're fine. We'll push through. People are used to this on the show. Fair enough. <laughs> um, yeah, for again, those also listening, usually know I film in the closet. Today, we're actually at the desk, and that may be affecting connection, but we're not in the closet today. We're out of the closet, and we are ready to rock. Perfect. Um, so, yeah, it's fine. So, speaking, like, do you have anything else to add for citizen soldiers? Well, I think that's what, you're, what we're saying here is that the citizen soldiers started to change. And in the 70s, um, I thought it was really interesting to see how um, the all-volunteer force was going to be designed to be, you know, competing in a job market. And you're starting to really redefine, you know, what the purpose of it is, despite what the old traditional Pentagon wants. And um, like, for example, I think they really did, work, they were ready to incorporate more women when the federal law changed in the late 60s. Um, that was fine. But what they didn't want to do was make it a enterprise that you're going to reward with um, benefits and enticements. Um, so the whole idea of what service meant was changing drastically by the 70s. No, yeah, you're exactly right. It's like now we have as part of this all volunteer force, right? It's people's careers. Like that's right. what they come into where they come in to serve their, was it six years? Um, Dependent, four, three. Four, yeah, dependent and like get their skill set and then go on much more of a maybe like an economic financial tool a resource if you're not going to stay in for a career absolutely and 
now at this point you're already shaping what a veteran will be because what what creates the uh, reason to to join and I, that's one of the early chapters you know joining up i mean why did i join in the first place is is and it depends on who you are um there is always a cohort that wants to join because of tradition um but there's a bigger and bigger cohort that wants to join because they're going to learn job skills they're never going to get in a, in in a college because they can't afford it yep so yeah and racially the military becomes more diverse in terms of gender it definitely becomes more diverse um and there's good very good aspects to that but at the same time education levels plummet and there's serious problems with that by the time you get to the 80s when i enlisted so yeah that's so that's something that surprised me i did yeah. not know that you see education levels yeah. decrease in the number like the type of people who are joining the military I enlisted in 1982, and that year, I think they told us that 45% of Army enlistees had a high school diploma. 40? 45. Oh, my gosh. So that was, you know, that changed, obviously. It's, it's, it's more than double that now, but back in those days, um, you're competing with a job market in a very unpopular um, – I mean, there's a there's a stigma with the military that is reflected in recruiting strategies. That's that's an endless problem. Yep. No, I was like, I wonder what it would be for the World War II generation. How many members of the World War II generation had high school diplomas? Because my both my grandfathers did not. I know that they the one left school, I think, when he was like 12 to get a job. He was a, he became a like a masonry apprentice. Um, and the second one was a mechanic but neither of them had high school diplomas. Yeah, I, I think when you're looking at love, you know, they, you know, the categories of the military that are always being redone, um, that's a chronic problem for people that are inducted, but you have training programs to get people up to basic literacy. Um, that Great Depression generation is interesting because a lot of people deferred school to work. Mm -hmm. So I think it definitely, you know, it probably drove the levels down. I have them somewhere in the back of my head, but I don't have the, the statistics at my fingertips. But yeah, it was, it it flow, it 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 changes. Um, I think deferments after World War II is what impacted it a lot because we didn't want a brain drain into the military. So you took the uh, the tests before you went to college, and if you placed out, you were recategorized, you know, as a student and exempt. And that became a ritual starting in the 50s. So that's yeah, that continued into Vietnam because I know my one of my advisors in undergrad, he goes, the only reason I have a PhD is because of Vietnam. Yeah. But that's that's because during the Cold War, you know, there was a deliberate effort to keep away this, you know, the the brain trust. Um, and that that started impacting the army in the 50s before Vietnam. So you know, you've heard of Project 100,000. I mean, that was kind of a, a way to, you know, to call that group. But uh, I like that, that quote from Colin Powell, where, you know, he's serving in the 70s. And, you know, these guys that are category four, the lowest mental category, there are a lot of guys. And that's why, you know, if you want to do maintenance on a truck back then, they're using comic books. I, I, I still remember those. Wow, um, comic books. Yeah, you're using pictures. To, to show where parts went. And, um, you know, you, these are guys servicing missile systems with comic books. So it's it's a very different military back then. Wow. Yeah, because it's like, I guess it's like you can be, we know this, right? You Someone can be very intelligent when it comes to certain things, but right. just not be able, they don't have the education to express themselves clearly through writing, right? Like the literacy is really low, but they can they can like build a house, right? Like very easily. And those oh, people I, are still very important to our military, but maybe, you know, don't give them a test. I, I think by the 80s, you know, on, you know, the Reagan years that you see a, a period of sustained recovery. Um, I think that, you know, a new generation's enlisting. I mean, the people who don't really have a working memory of Vietnam, you know, cause I was uh, 10 years old when Saigon fell. Okay. So. You're going to see the standards start to rapidly increase and it's also you've got the enticement of the new gi bill in 1984 and um so you've got a lot of incentives here that are bringing you know the you know a higher quality recruit bracket, and that's that becomes the standard by the end of the decade and it you know so there's recovery so i i guess 
one of the things I really was curious about was like, you know, how is this affecting the people who leave? You know, that's what goes in has to come out. What does it mean? Yep. I, um, so we recently taught an elective for race and gender in military history. So at the U.S. Army Command General Staff College. And one of the classes we talked about was African-Americans in military service. And there's an article written by a black community in New York around the time of the American Civil War. And the leaders of the black community are saying they do not want their men to go serve, not because they don't support the nation or they don't support emancipation, but they're afraid of what that's going to do to the community when their pillars of the community, these men are going to leave. And how is that going to affect? And there's this real fear that it's going to be um, a detriment to families, um, the economy. Do you do you think that's something that you see with communities currently, or is it more like if you want to serve, you can serve? It's not they're not going to truly affect the community. The one thing, the most consistent feature I've seen among African Americans who serve is they're extremely pragmatic about what the service is. So you're entering in to learn a skill that can be parlayed into a career afterwards, or you're going to adopt a career path that'll get you promoted and rewarded for your aptitude. And, you know, you know this as well as I, that you're, you're going to get promoted in the combat arms. So yeah. you're going to see people gravitate toward, you know, logistical branches, but also the combat arms, because that's the fastest way to move up. And that's where college doesn't matter. I mean, if you have good discipline and you're good at your job, that's, that's it. So every time I look at surveys from the Vietnam era and onward, you see that pragmatism everywhere. And when they get out, you know, the first goal is to make that GI Bill money work in a very specific field that's going to pay, pay something. Um, and I think that's even that's enhanced more among all veterans because, you know, the boom times of the post 45 days aren't there anymore. And they have to be extremely careful about what they do. So they want schools that are going to be able to train them into a career and they don't want to mess around with anything else. So, you know, that's in the campus, you know, I was doing the veteran on campus chapter. They're not joining fraternities. They just want to graduate and move on. Cause and most of these guys, I mean, a much higher percentage of them have, have families. Um, that was something that really struck me about the post nine 11 group. Um, they're married far more often than their peers and they have responsibilities. So okay. that's, that's all, you know, both all, you know, men, women, and all races. And that, that becomes more or less a trend. So they're, they're, you know, adults, they're, then they're acting like it. Um, so. No, that's very fascinating. Yeah. So that, that also surprises me, but I can, I guess I can see it, right. I under, I kind of understand it. looking at my own friends who I know who have served. Yeah. They do seem to be more pragmatic and what, like they want to serve their country, right. They want to defend their country, but they're also being very pragmatic about how it's going to serve them in the long run. Did you learn anything while writing the book? Anything really surprised you as you were doing your research and while you were writing? A lot, actually. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I, I went off, I went on, I, I, my sample chapter was something I didn't know a lot about. So I took a, I took a risk. <laughs> the one you sent to Massachusetts? Yeah. I love um, it. I was just curious because I was like, how, I, I wanted to look at veterans, you know, in economic terms, but not just in terms of jobs. So I really started digging into, and there's a, I did a chapter just on, you know, how you market a veteran and how it becomes a commodity. So, you know, I kind of went back into the Wayback Machine to the late 60s when you've got the NFL is taking up this idea where they're promoting the league as patriotic. So you start melding, you know, color guards and overflights. And that started in the late 60s. Okay. And then, you know, you go from there, but so companies plug into this idea that if I can be veteran friendly, it's perfect, right? And it, I can exploit that. But what I also found it was really more interesting was that veterans are doing that. You know, veteran owned. How many times have you seen that? Right? Yep. The spa I go to is veteran owned. And I go there because I want to support her. That's it. Uh, so I, I did a little profile of Black Rifle Coffee. And that's your, you know, and I love, you know, Evan Hafer, like how many corporate CEOs carried a saw in Baghdad. I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know if that makes the coffee better, but it sounds like a great marketing tool and it works. I mean, I'm, I actually subscribe to Black Rifle Coffee. I love, it's good coffee, but you know, we were kind of joking about that. I said, um, 
I just saw an ad for tactical baby equipment. You know, you could outfit your kid. Um, it's everywhere. So that was interesting. I mean, and, and to the point where I even found, you know, there's some interesting stories about how like fraud, fraud cases have come out of that. Um, Victory Media was a good example where they're basically selling an endorsement to colleges. Wow. And they had an FCC judgment made against them a few years ago because they were defrauding schools and selling veterans personal data. Holy cow. I brought that up at my school and my school was very embarrassed because we subscribed and uh, not anymore. But yeah, so, you want to support veterans. You want to do that. So it makes sense. You, right. Why would you think that someone was trying to defraud you? Well, you know, it's like any good thing that sounds too good. Um, I think the other thing I learned a lot about, you know, I did a standalone chapter on women and um, mm -hmm. I actually started by, you know, the first thing I found was uh, Omar Bradley, who I really, you know, lionized as one of the great reformers in the VA, um, flat out rejecting the idea that women in, after World War II needed any type of separate VA facilities. Wow. He said, you know, well, the, the system as we have it is adequate for their needs. So that stayed. And, you know, by law, you know, you're talking about, you know, limiting women in the military to 2%. And that was the law until the late 60s. But the system never really adapted. So wow. as women started entering the service, you know, from the, after, you know, toward, toward the end of Vietnam to the present day, you have more and more women, more and more female veterans and an incredible lag in institutional support. And the one thing that the stunner I found, and I, mean, I was looking at this in terms of, you know, physical injuries, PTSD. And if you look at the post 9-11 women veterans, um, the incidence of physical injuries by, you know, by combat is very small. I think the numbers I was coming up with was like 2% of the wounded and dead are, are female. Okay. But if you look at women claims, women making claims for military sexual trauma, it's enormous. Yep. So, you know, the conclusion I came up, you know, the, the biggest enemy to women in some cases was not the actual enemy. It was the military. Yep. And the system, I mean, we're really late in this story, but it still really hasn't completely adapted to that need. And how many waves of these scandals have we seen since, say, the late 80s? Right. Yep. So I kind of tracked them and I thought, wow, I mean, we're, we keep going after the exact same problem. So that to me, that when I started, you know, collating those numbers, I was really surprised. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's tragic. I mean, obviously, um, but I think that's a, that's a really important thing to illustrate. I mean, you have an institution for veterans that really hasn't adapted for this group and this group is going to grow. I mean, it's as simple as that. And uh, I was, you know, I got projections into the next 10, 20 years. Yeah. So those are two things. Wow. No, thanks for sharing. Yeah, that's a, it's, it's funny what you can surprise you even when it's your own book or your own research. I was surprised to see you uh, reference Lioness, the film. Yeah. So the captain in there, uh, Kate Katorpson was actually my colonel. Oh, wow. So she just retired not too long ago, but so we watched it. Um, she was part of the, the dual military marriage. Her husband also retires a colonel, but yeah, so she's in that. But so if people who are listening have never seen the film Lioness, we highly recommend it. It's about some yeah, of the first women soldiers sent. Um, they were in, in Iraq, right? To handle um, interrogations and searches. Yeah. Yep. I, and I, I like the point that was drawn out of the movie that, you know, when a woman comes back from a war, she's expecting help, but also expected to be a caregiver. So yep. you have a dual role that, you know, it becomes that expectation. And it's, um, it's not the same for a man in a lot of respects. I like that point. Yeah, it's definitely not the same, especially like showing how people are mothers, how people are working with their own family members. Exactly. Um, they have all these other responsibilities and expectations of them that maybe a, a male soldier does not have. I think it's also interesting, I speak to my students about this particularly, is um, how there's no clear divide where 
combat ends and combat starts and yeah. their experiences prove that right um yeah. the enemy doesn't care if you're a woman doesn't matter if you're just there to search doesn't matter if they're just to talk about to the women population they don't care so no, no. Um, something that you have to consider even if they're supposed to be listed as non-combatant they're still they still are com considered combatants and they're in combat and we have to we have to remember that going forward with all groups who serve i like the one quote the guy was talking about the you know probably the most dangerous job he saw in iraq was a truck driver oh yeah so yeah and transportation corps has a lot of women and yeah i i know from firsthand experience you know you're running the gauntlet literally um yeah, like these are stories you don't tell your family. You know, I mean, I'm driving down what was nicknamed RPG Alley. Oh my gosh! I'm thinking, why would they nickname it that? I I always ask my students that because they don't they don't know what an RPG is, but I did. You know, and um, <laughs> was this yeah, when you were in care. the 82nd, I mean, or were you when you were a contractor? I was at that that route was in Baghdad, but then later up we were in Mosul. Yeah. So who is this book for, Mike? Um. I don't like to write dense academic books that are just for this tiny group, you know, within my field. So, and you probably had this tug of war with editors too. I, I want to write in language that people, I, I hate saying accessible, but I just want to write in plain language. And that's always what I want. And we, we all lapse into our $10 phrases, but I want an audience that's interested in the topic. And really my audience is the people who went, their families, you know, the people who are interested. So. That would be first, probably students next. You know, at this stage of my career, I can write for academics last, you know. Um, but I think, like I said, I, when, I, when we started this, I, I think there's a need to understand. So I'm writing to that public. Well, fantastic. Well, so people, that includes most of my readers. So now you definitely so. have to go pre-order the book. Um, and you did some impressive research to truly try to understand or at least start to try to understand what is happening with the veteran community did part of your research include interviewing veterans it did um I, yes I'll, short answer is yes but i think what i what i tried to unlearn from grad school is to have so much data and not worry about people and i i think one of the things I've tried to do in years past is to include more and more human elements into any story. So I'm always looking for a perspective, a quote, an anecdote. So I'm drawing this from, say, the Library of Congress and oral history collections. Um, okay. Like we said earlier, social media, uh, the conversations I have with my own kids at school who came back, um, everybody. Um, so, you know, and it's interesting because this generation of veterans is you know, very media savvy. So there's plenty of sources. You know, I found some great candid comments about like what an infantryman thinks of his job prospects, right? Um, and these guys are hilarious. You know, that's, I love, you know, well, I can always be a janitor, you know, that, you know, that's because, you know, you're good at cleaning. So, oh. but, you know, I like that, that, that humor is funny, but it's also, you know, it's a good human element to the story. So there's, there's a whole different array of places to get that. No, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, for those, I didn't know as a veteran yourself, if you like called up some of your previous comrades and were like, can we talk? Um, yeah, we, we did actually. One of my, my guy just retired. His name was Lou Rodriguez. He was in Vietnam and we was, uh, we were always the earliest guys to come in because you know how that works. We're always the first guys and he would come in and complain every day. And we talk a lot about this stuff. And, um, you know, you have 40 years between our wars, but we understood each other extremely well. So even if it wasn't a quote, it was an idea, you mm -hmm. know, like how to approach this. And I've had an ongoing flow of kids coming in since, you know, the early 2000s. Um, it's tapered off, but, you know, in the dedication of the book, I probably have a dozen names and they're, they're all, you know, like mm -hmm. if they know it or not, they're in the book. Yeah, they're good, good people. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah, you discussed the treatment of veterans in the classroom. Mm -hmm. um, what can we do as instructors to welcome them without making them feel like we're infantilizing them or separating them from non-veterans? Um, I've been to, a, I don't know how many of these orientation sessions where, you know, faculty show up with a clipboard <laughs> and they, they treat them like they're like anthropologists, you know, and it's, uh, 
And I come in and I just, you know, just you talk to them straight, you treat them like normal human beings, you never reduce the standard. I mean, that's a, that's a huge red flag for them. Um, I learned a lot when I took uh, the veterans writing course at GW with Ron Caps. Okay. Because he has a, the veterans writing project. Um, I'm trying, we may or may not recreate that where I am now, but he's going to have a curriculum that interests them because it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it, it involves their topics, but it never reduces any standards. So I think that's a great way to do it. Um, so I, I was doing this in class today. We're talking about the civilian conservation corps. Okay. And I said, you know, you've got millions of guys going through this system and it's a system run essentially by the army. And I started talking about life at the CCC camp. I said, you know what it smells like? Damp canvas, burned coffee and diesel. And all these guys in my class are nodding. He said, yeah, that's what it smells like. So there are ways to like bring them in, but also at the same time, not pander. And I mm -hmm. think that's, that's the key. Um, and I, you know, you, you try to do it as best you can. And I think there's plenty of good training. Um, it's really just a matter of getting used to each other because you're, you got to realize you're never going to be able to fully understand, but you really don't have to. So is you know, there so anything that you do if you're coming up on a topic that might be particularly difficult or may be triggering, do you pull them aside or do you just be like, Hey, make sure you look at the syllabus for what's coming up because some of this stuff might not be the best for everyone, but not single them out. Just kind of have a blanket statement. I always say you're going to be treated exactly the same as the rest of the kids. So if you're going to miss class because of drill, all I need is paperwork, right? Make it simple. Um, so, you know, that's, you know, you're not playing favorites. Um, in terms of topics, I said, look, sometimes what we talk about is ugly. That's, that's reality. That's normal. Um, if I have to talk to them later and I, I really never had to, um, but on the same side, and you know, this, you know, these kids can be extremely opinionated and like throwing their weight around. Mm -hmm. So that's all good. That's all good. But they also have to, you know, commit to the same kind of uh, bearing. And that's the word I use all the time. I said, look, these youngsters that are with you are going to learn from how you conduct yourself. So I'm basically, you know, I'm telling, look, you're not done serving. You got to train these little kids up. These freshmen are like privates. <laughs> and uh, which is true. They are. Um, so they understand that really fast. I said, you're not done. I don't want you dumping all over because it's funny. They, there's a culture gap between the regular traditional undergrad and them. And they, they always talk about it. Mm -hmm. I said, all right. So, you know, and then I start giving them a hard time. I said, look, you're not, you're not God on earth. You are a mortar man. Shut up. <laughs> what did you do? You carried around something heavy. You know? Oh, I love it. So no, I'm not, you're not going to cut them any slack either, but you know, you like say, look, you still have responsibilities. So this 18-year-old knucklehead can learn something from you. You're a 20-year-old knucklehead. Yeah. So that's fine. And I, it's funny now because like the older veterans, I have a mentor, the younger ones who think they're big know-it-alls. And uh, I'm doing that now. I got a young medic who thinks he's, you know, God's gift to American diplomacy. And, um, you know, he, he knows stuff, but, you know, I'm not going to cut him any slack. Yeah. So I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's kind of how I do it. No, I love it. I love it. Cause yeah, you do. I remember having one. He was like, well, when I was over there, I did this. And I was like, that's great, Joe, let's move on. Like, thank yeah. you for sharing. Yeah. You yeah, know, like you can still share. I want to hear it, but don't act like it's the end of the discussion. I love that part. Cause I love the fact that they're not inhibited, but I also want them to have respect for the other side of the coin, which is us. And that's not, that's easy. Cause you know, it's like, we're authority. Look, it's, you know, and you know, it's, I, that's what I always liked about the American military. It's like, you, you earn respect and they, you know, as soon as you get that established, you're fine. No, I love it. No, that's great. Cause now, now working with active duty individuals still like, what's some things that I have to consider, but really I just go in, I'm like, just treat them like students. They're adults, they're professionals. If they have an issue, they can bring it up. Yeah. You know, and, and keep it above board. And, you know, like I said, you treat them like normal humans. You're good. Yeah. Okay, I think that's what we can all ask for, right? As humans, just be treated like fellow humans. Yeah. So if you could recommend one book on the topic of veterans, what would it be? I, I think I, I, that, I, that's an easy one. It's a soldier from the war returning. Soldier from the war returning. Okay. 
Yeah, that's a great book. Um, that was written by a University of Pennsylvania professor named Thomas Childers. Mm-hmm. And it came out years ago. It's not old, but it's within, I can't remember the year it was published, about within about the last 10 years. Um, he just covers the uh, post-war experience of three people kind of reassimilating. And it's it's not pretty. I mean, I, I, it's like an antidote to um, Tom Brokaw. You know, I think he even mentions that. He's tired of lionizing World War II veterans. He talked about their experience, warts and all, and it's very good. Okay. Put that on the list. I've never even heard of that one. Yeah, that's a, it's, I, I think I reviewed it a while ago, but I really, I just loved it. Because I, I, that's kind of, that was very important to shaping how I approach this. No, definitely. Uh, that is now on the list on my <laughs> notepad next to me. And if you could, you have a whole section, right, about film. And of course, mm-hmm. that's what we, how we met Mike and how we bonded. <laughs> um, and you have a whole, a whole section of the book talking about film. So if you could recommend one film on the topic or connect it to the topic what would it be i that's a tough one i don't think there's one but um i think the deer hunters still to me is a classic oh yeah because it's really it's when i first saw it i was very young and i didn't realize i thought it was going to be a vietnam movie and it, and it was but it was about uh pennsylvania yep. and as soon as i saw that opening scene i said well, god that looks like where i live it's like oh that looks familiar yeah um so it set up the town and the life and, you know, and then coming back to it. And I just, and I thought that's one of De Niro's best roles. It really is. Yeah. That's a, is that from the seventies? I think 78 or 79. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's old Meryl Streep. I mean, yeah. It's yep. a, it's a, yeah. Christopher Walken back before. He yeah. Got, I was going to say it's like a full yeah. cast. Yeah. I remember watching it on like AMC with my dad. And not really knowing what we were going to watch. You know, you have to you'd be prepared. But yeah, The Deer Hunter. Okay. How about a number two film? Because I know you have a ton in there. Like, oh. are there are other films that you absolutely love. I know I'm putting you on the spot now. About veterans. Um, well, I mean, it's the first one we reviewed. It was Best Years of Our Lives. Best, yeah, solid film. Because it, to me, it's... um. I just like the fact that they were really hitting. I mean, it was it did they didn't Hollywood it too much, you know. It still had the kind of tropes, but I liked the the honesty of the movie, and I really really liked. Um, I, and I did say this during the review. I said I really liked how they portrayed the women. Yeah, because they were all you know they were not patsies, they weren't pushovers, they were the core. Yeah, and, and they had their own agency. They did, and. I love the uh, chemistry between the three couples in that movie. Yeah, you Best know. Years of Our Lives is a film that if you have not seen it, uh, we highly recommend that you watch it. Because not only is it just yeah, that would fantastic writing, but it's, uh, I think it's beautifully shot. It's really well done. It's a very well done movie, but it's it can be tough to watch. It's not, yeah. it doesn't give you all the, uh, you know, happiness and butterflies there's some scenes that really pull at your heartstrings but it's 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 life you have to and everyone should watch it yeah and then how about one book you know i do this this is a follow-on from season one one book of all the books that you can recommend to our listeners what would it be I, the author, it's funny because I didn't realize initially what this was going to be, but I thought about it and it's actually in the book I did. It's in the veterans book. It's uh, William Gibson. Um, it's his, one of his first books. It's called Burning Chrome. Okay. Um, Burning Chrome. It's science fiction. I mean, he, he started writing in the eighties. He's the guy that coined the term cyberpunk and um, he's a futurist. He's always talking about kind of next stage stories that are, you know, a few decades down the road, but that whole section I wrote in the one chapter called Coyote Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, it came from one of his books where, you know, you've got this weird synthesis between fashion and military service. And it's really true. Uh, when you think about it, that, that color is not from the military. It was designed by a fashion designer, but it's, it's in the military now. Yep. So you've got that weird private public symbiosis. And I love that stuff. So William Gibson, I don't know. He's a great, he's a great author for a lot of reasons. Burning Chrome. What is Burning Chrome? Can you give us a quick synopsis what it's about? 
it's a series of short stories about, um, you know, the near future where you're going to see like a man machine melding. Um, he's one of the best atmospheric writers I've ever read. Okay. So it's like one of those books you read, like, and you remember for 40 years. So that's, that's the one. Okay. Burning Chrome it is. Never heard of that one either. I'm just listing out books now. Um, and again, if the listeners have forgot, I have a link to the bookshop.org where I will link all these books and then you can get them. And they're from small bookstores and your local bookstores. So proceeds go back to local bookstores instead of big corporate monstrosities. Nice. So we will link these books. We will link Mike's upcoming book. And Mike, I am so excited that you sat down with me tonight. Um, it was amazing. Thank you for one, sharing your book with me ahead of time so I could actually oh. read it and know what I was talking about. But two, for sitting down and sharing with us. I'm always surprised when people actually tell me they read my books. I'm still, you know, in that stage, like, well, my God, they read it. So thank you. Um, no, I have a ball with, I have a ball talking to you. I, this is, we were, we were saying like months ago, we should just take this on the road. We should. Cause uh, for those, again, I'm from Pottsville, Pennsylvania. You guys know that. Mike is currently at Kutztown University, but you're also, are you from Pennsylvania originally? I grew up in Conshohocken and then moved out to Norristown. So I'm like right down yep. the road from you. Yeah. Yep. So, and then we had Vanessa Cook is the one who introduced us, who is from Hamburg, Pennsylvania. She was on this show, I think episode three. So the three of us should go on the road. <laughs> and we have already started arguing about who has the best deli. And I think I won. Um, I've been to Heckey's in Hamburg, but she's been to Pudge's Deli where I grew up. So, and I think did Pudge's win? Yeah. Oh, yeah. She admitted it the first bite. She said, "No, this is better." Oh, see, <laughs> I maybe is it. I mean, maybe I um I don't really do delis. I do pizza places. Oh, what's up? Yeah. So <laughs> I think Pottsville probably has some of the best pizza places. Huh. A lot of Italians in one very small area. <laughs> it's true. So. Yeah, yeah. We, will, we will go on the, we'll go on a tour and we will eat our way through Pennsylvania and it will be fantastic. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, thank you, Mike. Take care. And uh, we'll do this again for sure. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. You have a good night. All righty.